grateful to be with you this morning. Before we get started, I, I just want to say thank you for singing that last song together. I love hearing the women sing. I love hearing the men sing. And especially if you know the, the lyrics to those, the, the men's part, when it says, I will love and adore you, I will bow down before you. There's something about that, hearing men say it, because I think more than anything else in our culture, we need men bowing down before their creator. Amen? We need it. And so I'm grateful that we're able to sing about it. A few weeks ago, we had a, a guy, high school guys retreat where we got to go out into the woods and shoot some guns, and we lost a student, but that's a, a separate, separate thing. Um, but the whole theme was, what does it mean to be a man of God? And a big part of that is falling to our knees. And it's, it's not just a man's responsibility, it is all of our responsibility. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, is, is making that very claim. And before we even get to our text today of chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, it's almost as though Paul is saying, hey, before, we, before I tell you all this, will you stop and reflect upon what I just told you in verses 5 through 11, about who Jesus is and the posture of humility that he takes? It's almost as though that, that's where it starts. That's where it has to start. And for us, that's where it, it will start. But Paul then begins to transition out of that to talk about what does it mean to live and walk with Jesus practically. And so he begins to, to tell us in verses 12 through 18. There are going to be three major points of emphasis that I think we're going to see in what Paul is saying today. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you up front. We need to move, number one. We need to be a people that moves. We need to commit. We need to commit. And lastly, we need to shine. We need to move commit and shine. And in the backdrop of all that, I want you to be thinking about this metaphor of, of a garden, a garden where God plants it in our lives, He plants this in our lives, and then we have this responsibility to tend and, and cultivate that relationship with him, ultimately so that we can bear good fruit. We're going to do that as we move, commit, and shine. So let's look at this first one together. We need to move. In verses 12 and 13 is where we see this. Let me read it for you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only when I am with you, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I want to start with what the text does not say. I want to get this up front, out and early. It does not say work for your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to deserve it. He is the one that makes it possible. He's the one that plants the garden in our hearts. He's the one, to use a different term, he's the one that justifies. Okay, we owe a debt that cannot be paid, but because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, our past present and future sins are wiped away. When we believe in him, we confess in him, we repent and we are baptized. He justifies it. Okay, We do not work for our, our salvation. But notice what the text does say. It says we're to work out our salvation. And we see it explained in verse 13 where it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, what, what are we supposed to work out? What is what he has already worked in us? But there is this working out process, and think about that metaphor of a, of a garden. If you're a gardener, you know that it's not a part-time job. 
You don't just get to do it on weekends. Okay? The garden isn't going to produce anything. If you do that, you have to be in it every single day. And that's the reason why Paul uses that term workout. In other places in the book of Philippians, he uses other terms like hold fast, look out, press on, strain forward, keep your eyes focused, stand firm. See, he, he's using these terms to get through our thick skulls at times that we've, we've got to be moving. We've got to be moving. We can't just sit there. Cannot just sit there. See, God is not our fairy godmother. You know, he's not our fairy godmother where we get to just hope, you know, upon a star that at some point he's going to wave his magic wand and say, poof. And now all of a sudden we become the Christians that he's always wanted us to be. It doesn't work like that. A deeper relationship with Jesus is not automatic. Let me say it again. A deeper relationship with Jesus is not automatic. There is no autopilot setting. And our relationship with Jesus, you know, we get on the faith plane, go up to 10,000 feet, flip the switch, and now God will fly you to wherever he wants you to go. Okay, that's not how it works. And we know that to be true. We see that in our relationships with our friends and family. We especially see it in our spousal relationship, don't we, guys? Because we know if, if you're a husband, you don't get to just flip on the autopilot switch in your relationship with your wife and assume that everything's going to work out okay doesn't work that way because we should be expecting to be growing in that relationship and just staying still we don't see that growth I mean when I look think about my relationship with my wife Catherine we've been married almost 10 years and I would think that I love her more deeply and more fully now than when I said I do I'm trying not to look at her over here that's the truth isn't it our love should be deeper as time goes on the same is true with our relationship with Jesus. I should not be able to rewind your life to a year ago and think that you're the same person. Your faith should be deeper from a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Let me put it in different terms. If you think about our kids or our physical bodies, we can see a progression, can't we? Especially with all these young mothers at New Hope that have one-month-old, two-month-old, three-month-old. The only reason I know how old they are is because they post on Facebook, I love it, the picture of their kid with what they've been doing that day or what they've been able to accomplish in the last month. Okay? And it's beautiful. And the mothers take, I'm not chastising, it's, it's awesome because we want to see them grow. We, are t- we take pride in our kids and how they're maturing. And the same is true with little kids as it is with a little bit older kids, with kindergarten First grade and second grade, we take those pictures at the beginning of the school year and at the end of the school year. They're not quite the same anymore, and it goes all the way up to high school. It makes me think, if you have one of these, if you have one of these at your house, you have one of these at your house, okay? I'm a, uh, Rob's already taken a picture of this, and I'm sure I'll see it in a future sermon at some point. But isn't this true? We take pictures of each grade, kindergarten, first, and second, because we want to see the growth. We want to see the maturity. And when I look at mine, which I stole from my parents at 925 Millerwood Drive, if you go up the stairs, you'll see all four of the king children in all our glory. You'll see the, the progress. And I, and I look at it, I mean, third and fourth grade were not kind to Ryan. Okay? That's true. It's not kind, but it, think about if we had one of these in our heart that described our relationship with our Father, with Jesus would we see in the snapshots of our life a progression from less mature to more mature? 
And you know what? You may say, yeah, I've got those in my life, but they are, they're not always pretty. And I would say, you're right. They're not always pretty, but you're still growing. And God is working in your life to bring you somewhere where you can't be all by yourself. See, working out your faith implies growth. And growth implies movement. So are you moving? We'll come back to that in a second as we explore this second point. We need to commit. We need to commit. And we see this specifically in the latter half of verse 12 when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Now, you could read from the text and think that that, that is a, it could be considered a plural you, meaning that Paul, when he's saying that, he's saying you, the church, we should be working collectively our salvation. And that's true because we are reconciled to God individually and reconciled to one another. But when you say that a healthy new hope, a healthy new hope is made up of healthy individuals, I think that's true. So there is a responsibility that we are supposed to play. And Paul emphasizes the singular because he wants to make sure that our faith is not someone else's. You know, I work with students, and so oftentimes we say, well, your faith can't be your, your parents. You need, you need to make your own faith. It has to be yours, and that's true. We say it often. But I wonder if when we get a little bit older, if we forget that same statement, when our faith ends up becoming more dependent on other people, our friend group, people we see at church, our friends, our spouse, is your relationship to God dependent or contingent upon how well your wife or husband is doing with God? Hopefully not. Hopefully we are directly connected to that, that vine. Hopefully we're not expecting our faith to be something that we collectively as a church only do. But because this ministry over here or Rob preached about this or someone's having that conversation that now I get to step back but I get credit for it. Paul is saying that we have to commit to making our faith our own because God has planted, returning to that metaphor, God has planted a garden in my heart and in your heart. And you are ultimately responsible for cultivating that garden. I cannot do it for you, and you cannot do it for me. You have that responsibility for your own life. See, if growth implies movement, that means you, you must be moving. And if we're not moving... Think about this with our physical bodies. If I stop working out and I stop moving, then Ryan's going to get flabby. Okay? We get flabby because we're not using our faith. If we don't use it, we lose it. So my question to you, when was the last time you used it? When was the last time you lived by faith where you didn't know it was going to be around the corner? All you had was your hand in God's. And he's leading the way. When was the last time? When was the last time you knew that there was something hard you needed to do that God was leading you to, and you actually said yes to that? See, we don't do that very much. We compartmentalize our lives. We manage things because I don't want to be dependent on you, and especially in our context and culture, and heaven forbid I'd be dependent on God. I want to be comfortable. I want to fill all the spaces in my, of my life with cotton so that I don't have to need him because needing him is hard. And so we, we, we have a faith that's, that's flabby. And I, I think at times that, that there's a, a valid reason for that. Because when we look at ourselves, I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, okay, I've got these skills and abilities, these talents, God's placed me in this specific place. And then I see this need over here in this country or on this trip or in this ministry. And I'm, I'm thinking, God, surely you know who I am and my limitations. You know I can't do that. Surely there's someone that's better equipped, 
better positioned to be able to, to meet that need. And I think when we do that, we forget that the very essence of faith is gap. Meaning that there is always going to be a gap between who you are and what God wants you to do. There will always be a gap between who you are and who God wants you to be. And so when God is leading you to do specific things, he's not just wanting you to do something, he is leading you to become someone. He's leading you to become someone. So how do we fight that flab? How do we engage our faith? Well, the same way that you would, that I would instruct you and your doctor would instruct you with your physical body. If you're not working out and you're not moving and you need to get things going, we'll start moving. Start working out. Start putting your faith into practice. And so you may ask me this question, well, Ryan, what does that look like? What does that look like, Ryan? And I would respond kindly by saying, well, what does that look like? What does that look like for you? I can't give you the answer. Rob and David can't give you the answer. No elder can give you the answer. You have to go to God to get that answer. It's specific to you. It's specific to you. So I think at times we need, we talked about earlier, fall on our knees before the God who is writing our story and ask him, ask him, God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? And by the way, we need to stay on our knees long enough to wait for the answer. We have to take that same posture that Jesus did. So I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know. There are, there are lots of things here at the church. Maybe one of these is, is something that, need, that you need to do, a step you need to take. One would be this. The idea that serving needs to be more than just a heart of compassion. It needs to be a desire to commit. Not just this wanting or wishing to, to be able to help, but actually putting your name on the dotted line. We put together a weekly email called the New Hope Happenings. If you don't get it, email the office, my wife or Janice, and they will be happy to get you on it. But in that email, it lets you know everything that's going on at New Hope, all the ways to serve, opportunity after opportunity, hospitality ministry, this, student ministry, that, worship ministry, this. And do you know how many times those opportunities go unfilled? Because I think at times we can get lost in the desire to do something and we separate that from the actual doing of the thing. We've got to commit. Or maybe it could be this for you. Giving needs to be more than just a, having a guilty conscience. It needs to be a generous response from a grateful heart. God wants all of you. And our money is just his anyway. So if you're someone that's been attending New Hope, and during our offering time you see the plate being passed, have you responded to that invitation, not by New Hope members, but ultimately of Christ to say, do you want to participate in what we're doing? Or if you're someone that calls New Hope home, or you're a member, and you actively seek to give each and every month or each and every week, have you listened to that inward cry of the Spirit who has been urging you to not just give generously, but to give sacrificially? Have you been willing to give up something, something real and tangible, so that he, his kingdom can be proclaimed? I don't know. Maybe it could be this, though, for you, that learning needs to be more than having a listening ear and needs to be the heart of an engaged mind, really, to be a servant and a student. This one gets me fired up a little bit because I work with fifth and sixth graders in their class, seventh and eighth graders in their class, and we've got high school students. And I'm afraid at times that our Sunday morning experience gets limited to just coming to one service and then leaving. Because I think God has a whole lot more in store for all of us 
an entire morning of worship and being given to God. So I wonder at times if rather than just coming to one service, what if we did this? What if we took our students, fifth through 12th grade students, even the little ones, and we decided, you know what, we're going to come to the second hour. And as parents, we're going to go to one of the classes that's offered. We're going to go to one of the classes that's offered so that I can, as, as adults, we can be equipped. And now our kids can go to teachers that are not just babysitters. They have prayerfully considered what it means to present the gospel to your student today. And so as we go and get equipped from other adults and our students and our little ones go back to classrooms where they are being presented with the gospel, now when we come to a service like this, now we come together as a family and we get to worship together. And I know our little ones don't always understand what's going on in a worship service like this and a sermon that's being preached, but I do know this, that if, if your kids will see you and your spouse, or just you, in a chair, worshiping and praising God, opening your Bible, taking communion. The fire that is in you will ultimately leak out and light the fire that is in them. I don't know what it looks like for you. It could be these. It could be a host of other things. You've got to ask God what he's calling you to. And I, I do know this, though. I do know this, that we are our salvation. Our faith is not just from something. It is to something. It is for something. And so as we begin to, to figure out what this is, what this walking with God process is, as he works in us, as we try to respond, don't think of it as a checklist. You see that in, in that verse, in, in verse 12, 13, where it talks about with fear and trembling? It's not being afraid of what God is going to say when we don't do what's right. The fear and trembling piece is having the right understanding of who God is and what he has done. So as I begin to walk with him, and move with him and grow with him, my life ends up becoming a natural expression of worship. That's what a close communion with God is going to produce in your life, is a life of worship. So what have we been saved for? Well, Paul tells us in our third point, we need to shine. And we see that in verses 14 through 16. Let me read it for you. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ we may be proud that we did not run or labor in vain. See, here Paul is reminding us of our calling to be blameless and innocent children, like, so that we shine like, the text even almost implies, stars which is the very thing that happens when we begin to walk with Jesus. As he works in us, he builds this garden, he establishes this garden, we tend and cultivate that loving relationship with him. And now we begin to ask him, God, what do you want? And as we walk with him, our life doesn't become a list of check, checklists, it becomes an outward expression of that closeness, it becomes worship. And that worship, in the small and the big, ends up becoming the very things that other people notice. That becomes the light that they see. But notice, though, that Paul does include one little prerequisite in verse 14. He says, you know, first got to do all things without grumbling or complaining, and then do not dispute or argue. And I, I know he's writing to the Philippian church, but there's no way that he's actually writing this to New Hope, is he? See, I have the sneaking suspicion that at times our understanding of what the Christian life is and the reality of our experience, they don't match up 
in our hearts and our minds. And so deep down inside of us, we start to grumble about what God has asked us to do and who he's asked us to do it with. And those grumblings end up leaking out through our mouths in the form of complaints. And then what's in our hearts and what's in our mouths leaks out on the people around us, the people you're sitting next to. And we begin to argue and dispute. The problem with that, Paul is reminding us, is that if we argue and grumble and complain, we end up looking more like the twisted and crooked generation that we are trying to shine as lights in. We end up looking more like that. And Paul is saying, no, 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 we have a higher calling here. And I think as he's writing this to the church in Philippi, he is, in the back of his head, he's thinking about the Israelites in the Old Testament. You're familiar with all those stories of of their interaction with God. God chooses them, and they walk, they walk this interesting path. And when I think about their story, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world did they have to complain about? Because we see a lot of complaints from them, thinking, it makes no sense. Why? Here you have the God of the universe chooses them, raises up Moses, leads them out of bondage, protects them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, to the mountain. And he sets up shop there. He's like, hey, I want to show you what I'm really like. I want to remind you of who you are, your purpose, and your identity. But for some reason, in the heart of the people, their expectation of what God was and their reality didn't match up. So within a short 40-day span, they build the golden calf. And they throw it all away. They ruin it. Of course, we see the nature of God at work because he continues to pursue his people. He meets their physical needs, he gives them bread, he gives them meat, he gives them water, and ultimately he's leading them to a, to a, a, a forever home. And yet still we read time and time again, complaining, grumbling, and arguing. So I think to myself, what in the world do they have to complain about? And then I stop and I'm thinking, what do we have to complain about? We Christians that live in 21st century America, we people that are the richest 1% of people that ever live in the world, ever. We have access to Bibles in every single translation and every single language. We have this building that we can meet in. I'm not worried about stormtroopers coming in as I speak. Air conditioning, heat. We even have a Chick-fil-A that just opened up less than a mile from our place. Okay? But isn't it true of us? Somehow the expectations of what the Christian life is supposed to be, both in our walking with Jesus and walking with one another, that doesn't match up with our reality or what we think should happen, and so we begin to inwardly grumble and complain and argue. And I think Paul is saying, you can't do that. Remember what I've already written to you earlier in this chapter, in this letter? Remember what I said? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's like, you haven't forgotten that already, have you? Or what Jesus said is recorded in multiple Gospels. You have to deny yourself. Not just deny yourself. Deny yourself every single waking moment, every single day. And pick up a cross. Notice it doesn't say pick up your Bible. No, pick up a cross and follow me wherever I lead. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he comes He bids him come and die. That's ultimately what we're being called to, to die to self and be used in in the hands of our faithful Father. So we're to remember our calling to shine. And the only way we shine is when we are fully given to him. 
And so we, we look to see the example of Jesus, verses 5 through 11. Jesus is fully given to his Father. He's willing to give it all up. And then Paul, if you skip down in our text this morning, verses 17 and 18, says, I'm willing to give it all up. I'm willing to be poured out as a drink offering. Empty me completely. I'm willing to give it all. And the same question is asked of us, are we willing to give it all, give it all up? Now, uh, my thoughts go when I think about this to a devotional, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. Are you familiar with that devotional? When I was a missionary in Haiti, this, I, I went through that devotional every single day. It was, it was my, my compass in a lot of ways. And that second year, the first day of the school year, was uh, a devotion that uh, said this, and I hope it, it speaks to you. He says this, God's purpose is not simply to make us beautiful, plump grapes, but to make us grapes so that he may squeeze the sweetness out of us. If we are ever going to be made into wine, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. See, when God plants the garden and we tend and cultivate it, that loving relationship with him it is ultimately to be able to bear fruit. But guess what? It's not fruit so that we can just look at it. There goes one. Try not to squash it. It's not so that we can look good. It's not so that I can eat it. Because you see what it says in verse 13, don't you? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for, you see it in the text, for Ryan's good pleasure. That's what it says. No, for his good pleasure. In order for his good pleasure to come, my good pleasure has to go. It has to go. So if God is willing to squeeze Jesus, if God is willing to squeeze Paul, what would make us think that he's not wanting to squeeze us? And it's in that squeezing that we hope that the, the sweet juices flow out, not the, not the complaining, not the grumbling, not the arguing. Chambers continues by saying this, I wonder what finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you. Maybe it's the person right next to you. Have you been as hard as a marble and escaped? If you are not ripe yet, and if God had squeezed you anyway, the wine produced would have been remarkably bitter. To be a holy person means that the elements of our natural life experience the very presence of God as they are providentially broken in his surface. We have to be placed into God and brought into agreement with him before we can be broken bread in his hands. See, that's what our text this morning is talking about. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. The fact that we see the example of Jesus, the posture that he takes, we get down on our knees. He then, we respond to the finished work of Jesus, and then he plants this garden. We tend and cultivate it. As we walk with him, if we ask him what he wants of us, our lives become full of worship because we're spending time with him. And as we mature and grow, the hope is to be able to produce fruit, fruit that ultimately God can use to squeeze us, to create a drink that is desperately needed in a parched and barren world. So I don't know where you are in this. I don't know if God has planted a garden in your heart or not. I don't know if you respond to that. I don't know if you're trying to figure out what God is asking you to do in this stage of your life. I don't know if your fruit needs to mature a little bit or if God is ready to squeeze you. I don't know what it is. But I do know this. We find the answer when we bend our knees when we bend our knees, we look our Father in the face, and we ask him. And when we ask him, let it be said of us that we were willing to listen, 
And more than listen, let it be said of us that we would do what he has called us to and obey. Let's pray.